Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. The eyes to the right, 286. The nose to the left, 344. So the nose have it, the nose have it. Unlock. Order, order. Division. Unlock. I can't do a Burko. You did a very good one last week. I had people texting me saying, you know, there's perhaps a a career for Ed as a John Burko tribute act. Oh, that's dizzy height. (laughs) So what was that we just heard there? Well, that was uh, meaningful vote two and a half. Why not meaningful vote three? Because she stripped out the uh, political declaration. Yes, because she was trying to get the withdrawal agreement through. Um, But it didn't. I mean, 58, I mean, that's still quite a big majority against, isn't it? After all the arm twisting and all of that. So I've had to come and meet you yes, and have a cup of tea with you at your place of work, where usually you're just inviting the likes George, of George, George Ezra. Ezra for lunch. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you're going to ask me um, what's going to happen next, aren't you? Mm. I don't know. Um, Monday's indicative vote two. How was indicative vote one for you? Well, actually, you know, the debate in indicative vote one was very, very good um, because it wasn't the normal Yabu sucks to you sort of people chucking stuff at each other. They made the case for that. I mean, it was re- I sat through two or three hours of it and it was really good. It was really high quality. It obviously wasn't definitive in terms of the outcome, although it wasn't expected to be. I mean, I, hopefully we can sort of move towards more of a clear review on monday but uh you know it's obviously very difficult because people are very entrenched it sounds critical but i don't mean in a critical way people are very kind of want their own options so if you if you were a betting man what's going to happen 
Mm. I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I think I, I think it's going to be hard to find a resolution. I think I don't. Th- well, I think that's probably stating the obvious, but I don't. I don't think there's going to be an easy resolution around the corner. Well, that's great news. <laughs> Why can't you give us a reason to be cheerful around Brexit? Ed? But I think so. We've sort of generally been a Brexit-free zone, haven't we? And, yeah. And this week we're talking. I think we're sort of inching into the Brexit tree sort of arena, but hopefully in a positive way. Today, this week, we're talking about coastal towns. Now, one in six people live in coastal communities. One in six people in the UK. That's eleven million people. Uh, the top five areas for leave voting. Uh, were coastal towns and you know we are talking about what can we do to help coastal communities and i actually think this is a sort of microcosm of the wider debate about areas that haven't benefited from prosperity that have been left out that you know have great people great businesses in them but haven't had the investment that is required and I think it's a really fascinating subject, and we've got some great guests. And we're joined this week, I should mention, by a comedian pitching some ideas. She's a fantastic musical comedian. Jess Robinson will be pitching her ideas. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. So what's your reason to be cheerful this week, then? Is it MV 2.5? My reason to be cheerful is springtime. It's here. Thank goodness. It also marks the start of the baseball season. My team, uh, the Boston Red Sox, defending World Series champions, played their first game last night. They lost badly, but never mind. They've been doing well up until They've been doing it, and they've got 161 games to go. Yeah. Well, congratulations on spring arriving, baseball starting, lambing season. Exactly. Daffodils. What's your reason to be cheerful? I did another one of my trips to Liverpool the other day for my uh, show on American Radio, my Beatles show, and I I got to go to a museum. It's called the Magical Beatles Museum. It's set up by the brother of Pete Best, who confusingly is also the son of the Beatles' right-hand man, a guy called Neil Aspinall. And the things in there for Beatles geeks, there was a, a carrier bag from the Beatles shop. They had a shop called the Apple Boutique on Baker Street where they sold clothes. So that was exciting for me to see. They had some. Well, of the, they had a shop. The Beatles. the Beatles had a shop. Yeah, they had a clothes shop on Baker Street, and they painted it this huge psychedelic mural on the outside of the building. And then Westminster Council came along and said, "We don't like that. You've got to paint it white instead." And they ended up being sick of the shop and giving away. In those days, it was twenty thousand pounds worth what, of stock. What, what, what's there now? Um, I think it's just a Barclays Bank or something like that now. They had some of Pete Best's old drums there. Uh, they had some of John Lennon's garden furniture. For, for somebody like me, this this was heaven. Beetle geek heaven. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. On the line now we have Fernanda Bellata, who is Senior Programme Manager at the New Economics Foundation. Uh, Fernanda leads on coastal economies and co-wrote the Blue New Deal report, which we're going to be talking about. And uh, the NEF is a think tank that promotes social, economic and environmental justice. Fernanda, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So just to try and start with a picture of how life is in those communities. A sixth of the British population, which is more than 11 million people, live in coastal communities uh, across islands, fishing villages, port towns and cities. And all of the top five local authorities with the highest leave vote in the 2016 referendum were on the coast. Can, can you talk to me a little bit about why these communities face specific challenges? Uh, what, what is it about life in those towns, which made them more likely to vote leave in the referendum? 
Right. So I have to start always when I talk about coastal communities, I have to start by saying that those are amazing communities with, you know, an amazing lifestyle living on the coast. That's why a lot of people retire to the coast. That's why a lot of people want to move to the coast when they do. You know, it's the amazing coastal um, environment. So, you know, there's lots of positives, you know, really strong communities, the ones that I've been meeting for the past few years traveling around the coast. But they do face a lot of challenges. They are complex challenges. So the first thing I'll say is that when looking at coastal communities as one group of communities in the UK. Um, You see higher levels of deprivation, unemployment, educational underachievement. Those are economies that have been lacking diversity and dynamism. So many areas, for example, are heavily dependent on tourism, which is a seasonal industry. And that means that they lack resilience, really. So it makes them less able to cope with any shocks to the economy or environmental shocks, like the effects of climate change, for example. And what has been happening in coastal communities is something that has been happening with other communities in the country, which is that they have never really recovered from the loss or decline of traditional industries, such as fishing, shipbuilding, um, or the glory days of British seaside tourism. And what hasn't happened is a coherent plan to reinvent coast economies and to support them in filling those those gaps that have been left for too long there. So there's they're, they're really living a cycle of disadvantage. That's how I see it. Areas that are most in need are also the least attractive to investment. So there's a challenge there in how do we basically m- make a change? You know, how do we transform what's happening right now? And a potential answer to that is this blue new deal that the New Economics Foundation uh, propose. Can you talk to us about the deal, uh, what that proposes and what it would involve? Yeah, so the blue new deal is a vision um, and also a plan for the UK coast. So it's first saying that the starting point for, for blue new deal should be coastal communities' most unique asset, what sets them apart, the the reason why we talk about them, which is the coastal marine environment. And so if you're looking at, you know, creating a healthier coastal and marine environment and really supporting those resources on which communities heavily depend on, what does that mean then for economic development? How do we think about the activities we're going to be investing in? You know, how we will invest in them differently? And so the Blue New Deal it's, it's very much about, you know, focusing investment in, in the activities, industries such as, you know, tourism has a potential to be, you know, a good, good positive economic force. It's not doing the job yet, but it could be better. Fisheries could be, we could drive really sustainable fisheries for, for real in the UK. We could invest more in renewable energy. We could invest more in, in other industries as well that, that could be set on the coast. But in order to address the challenges on why certain industries, for example, the digital uh, economy hasn't been thriving on the coast, you know, place that people would probably like to go and, you know, sit in the sunshine and then go to the office and do very remote work, for example. The reason for that is because of the, the complex challenges. So now I'll go back to um, the more systemic issues for the coast is that it sits on the periphery of the UK economy. So they lack connectivity. So sometimes it's really hard just for people to relocate to the coast because of transport infrastructure. Broadband connectivity might not be so good. So what the Blue New Deal is saying is that there's all this potential on the coast and communities are doing already and, and could be doing a lot more with the right support. But there is a need for a national framework of investment and particular look at the coast. And so that's why we talk about a coastal industry strategy 
but also about, you know, if you're thinking about national infrastructure in the UK, you need to have a coastal element to it. There are particular challenges for the coast. If you're talking about skills, there is a particular need, you know, on the coast in terms of, of the, the types of skills or reskilling or retraining of people. And, and why is infrastructure historically so poor in those coastal communities? Is it sort of literally because they are the peripheries of the country? Well, it all starts with the UK economy being heavily centred in and around London. You know, what that means, obviously, is that transport routes will go where, where the money is, basically, you know, where investment is, where the businesses are locating. Coastal communities have been kind of peripheral and like they, they, they survived on lots of traditional industries, such as fisheries and tourism. There wasn't so much of a care of how that could have been addressed, you know, as the economy continue to heavily centre in London and, and other areas. What does a better version of tourism look like in British coastal towns? You mentioned there was this heyday uh, of, of uh, tourism in this country in, in those towns and a lot of them, you know, you, you see it's, it's, it's faded, it's not there anymore. What, what does a, a better, more modern, more sustainable and actually year-round version of that look like? There's quite a lot happening in this space now. Um, so to say that tourism on the coast is actually not doing very bad, but it's just that in comparison with tourism um, in the country, it sits in the margins, um, you know, and it's not, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. And so, but, but coastal tourism in the UK has been uh, competing, you know, with, with cheap tourism abroad, you know, in Europe, you know, in places that have maybe, you know, more sunshine and, 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 and so forth and people want to go. Um, so what we're saying is that if you, if you actually look at tourism as alongside other industries and other activities on the coast, then that's the potential really for tourism. So for example, there are lots of communities that are combining fishing heritage. So it's about safeguarding the fishing heritage of an, of an area. Um, and I'm talking about small boats, um, you know, and that, that kind of feeling and, and being able to, to buy and eat local catch and so forth. So combining that with a tourism strategy, for example, which gives really a character to an area, which is what people want to visit, right? People want to go and see places with character, places that have a history, places that showing are able to really able to feel the uniqueness of a place. And, and how do you get around this problem of uh, employment in the tourism industry often being seasonal and having low wages and then it's not stable for those communities? Yeah, I think part of the answer of that is also what I've been talking about in terms of, you know, a more holistic uh, view and a better strategic planning in terms of economic development in an area, meaning tourism not being seen on its own, but alongside other industries. If communities are thinking about all these things, they are coming up with good ideas, they're trying to do those things which would ensure year-round jobs, employment, but they still have to deal with something that it's beyond what they can do at a local level, which is if people are not able to access those places, then it's about transport connectivity. If, you know, if businesses are not able to locate that because of poor broadband, it is about, you know, a wider kind of investment strategy at a national level. There's also a matter of skills. So if you're thinking about new types of jobs, places that have been left behind for too long, you know, and, and they haven't been invested in, that means also that they have been suffering from educational underachievement and or people just need reskilling really f to, to tap into new opportunities and let me ask you also about fish um fish is a controversial <laughs> issue um not least in the context of brexit talk to us about fishing and 
our coastal communities and what we should sort of understand about the sort of common fisheries policy and and where fishing policy needs to go sort of post whatever happens on Brexit? Right. So fishing is a fascinating um, issue in the UK, um, certainly. I think the first thing you need to understand about the fishing uh, debate is that the fishing industry is not one industry. So when we talk about, you know, fishing and Brexit, you know, there are different stories there. Um, You have, you know, heavily concentrated fishing quotas, which are you know, the, the kind of amount of fish that UK boats can catch. They are heavily concentrated in the hands of the big boats. And so about 70% of the employment in the fishing industry in the UK is actually on small boats, but they only get about 2% of the quota of the, the amount of fish that we can catch. That has always been in the hands of the UK government, um, the, the power to change that. The EU and the common fisheries policy um, would, you know, the EU member states would agree the, 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 the number of quotas each country could get, but the country itself has always been responsible for how they distribute that within the country. So how, what that, does that mean to coastal communities is that um, small boats that, constitute the majority of jobs in the UK are the ones that are contributing the most to the local coastal economies. And they have also that connection, right? So it's people who live there and who are who have a direct kind of connection to the supply chain as well and to all the other businesses in that area. Uh, an issue I wanted to ask you about was second homes, um, middle class people buying holiday homes, which they are rarely at. How does that factor into the deal and and what is that doing to coastal communities that is an issue in many communities in the UK I'll give you one example of St Ives because um, one the issue is is great there when you go to St Ives and you visit the seafront spectacular you know views an amazing place if you go off the season so off summer you know you have all these buildings and houses on the seafront that are shut down they're not being used um and it's it's really sad i mean it's the most you know prominent bit of the town. So what has happened over the years is that the local population has had to move away from the sea, from from the, the, the most valued um, area. And that's um, as a result of lots of uh, second home ownership. And St. Ives is interesting because it has had this issue. The local community has, you know, been obviously not happy with that for a long time. And a few years ago, they had they voted um, for neighborhood plans to ban second home ownership um, and they were successful and actually became an international example. But are there some ways in which this helps the communities as well? Is, is there uh, an economic benefit to people buying houses in, in towns which might be struggling otherwise and, and coming in and maybe different types of businesses opening to cater for those people? I'm not saying that you know second homes are always a bad thing um, but I think Certainly, St. Ives, I'm, I'm using as an example because it hasn't generated benefits for the local area. And I think that's when anything becomes a bad thing. You know, if, if you're investing in a place by buying a house, for example, then that needs to be linked to how are you generating public benefit in some way or, or, or supporting a community in some way or creating jobs, you know, if, if, if it is the case. The New Economics Foundation has founded something called the Centre for Coastal Economies to work with coastal communities. Can you tell us about uh, that and some of the projects that you've worked with? Yes. So the Centre for Coastal Economies um, is uh, basically our programme of work to support the implementation of a Blue New Deal. What we've been doing is just 
supporting um, communities with specific projects or with, you know, a way for them to engage with economic change. So we're working with a community on the East Coast. Can't talk about the name yet. It's just a project in development, which is about how coastal communities can do coastal management in a different way. What that means is that, you know, for a long time, development on the coast of building on the coast has meant that we have degraded lots of the coastal habitats, which has made them then less able to cope with, for example, sea level rise um, and big storms, which means increased risk of flooding in areas. So actually, there are better ways that are good for nature and more resilient for local communities to manage our coast um, if we do more natural processes, sometimes allowing some areas to flood and uh, generate new uh, habitats that are more rich in biodiversity, for example, and can create new opportunities for tourism in terms of, you know, this area, for example, would greatly benefit from windsurfing, which is something that it's really a new type of like water sports and, and can bring in new new types of visitors as well to the area. So there's lots of opportunities when you start to think about, you know, okay, so how can we support the, the local environment? So, so really the resilience of this place and what benefits then that generates to local people? And then what does that mean for new economic opportunities? And that's, that's the process that we're going through with different communities in the country. I've got one final question, Fernando. We have a um, thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is a slightly st- strange idea, which is that Jeff becomes the supreme uh, ruler. And um, I mean, clearly, it's kind of a relatively dangerous proposition. But but uh, speaking as we are on the day of... Uh, Careful, well, we you are jeopardising your position as Minister we, for Windsurfing. Where, where we don't... Uh, uh, now that now that you've told me I've got that position, I, I'm, 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 I'm much more positive. Uh, so we've got this brilliant, uh, positive, utopian vision of a Jeffocracy with me as Minister for Windsurfing. If Jeff made you Minister for Coastal Communities, what's the first thing that you would do in the Jeffocracy? So I think the first thing I would do is set up within the existing institutions – so local authorities, local enterprise partnerships, make sure that there was a coastal group which had, you know, genuinely representation from from the local areas to start to think of what a what a blue new deal would look like for their region and their area, and really allow and give the right amount of support for those groups to develop their strategies through that, um, link that up with all the things that we already have in policy in terms of the investment that it's needed in renewable energy and tourism in places, but really do it in a way that it's in response to what these areas think that they need. And I'm saying this because right now there isn't such a thing, right? So the coast tends to lose out um, in regional plans. Um, they're, they're not only catering for the coast, so local authorities and local enterprise partnerships, which right now hold either the power or the money at a local level for many of these things, they tend to almost forget. I mean, is that cycle of disadvantage that I mentioned. So I think as a starting point to really give legitimacy to some of those coastal groups and, you know, and bringing the ones that already exist and just legitimizing them to be able to develop and say what they need and what they want so that it would then inform government on what kind of investment it would then make. 
And then the final thing I wanted to ask you is there may be some sort of dangers of um, not exactly corruption in the Jeffocracy, but I think he's going to want to have a nice time. Where, where would you recommend he sets up his coastal HQ? Yes. I mean, it's as part of economic development, obviously, not yeah. not the sort of enrichment. Of it's not a second Jeff home, life. so St. Ives could be nice. It's not a, where, where, where's, <laughs> where's, I, but I can sort of see him in the sort of co- in his coastal HQ, yes. you know, walking along the beach, sort of you know, thinking about the big yes. decisions you've got to make. Okay, I'll say one that really impressed me uh, when I visited for the first time last year, which was um, Scarborough. Scarborough. All right, I'm there. Yeah. Jeff's Coastal HQ in Scarborough. (laughs) I think we're all uh, looking forward to it. Fernanda Balacha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to be joined now by Nick Taylor, who is um, former Renaissance manager in Scarborough. Nick, I wanted to congratulate you, first of all, because we were just talking to Fernanda Balata from the New Economics Foundation. Uh, oh, yeah. we, we asked her, where should be the coastal headquarters uh, in, in the Jeffocracy, a thing we have on the, this podcast, which is a kind of utopia, and she selected Scarborough. So congratulations on being selected. Well, that's brilliant news. Excellent. Well, I'll buy her an ice cream when she comes up here. <laughs> That'd be lovely. <laughs> so, so you were part of the Scarborough Renaissance Partnership. Can you, first of all, start by just telling us about the regeneration of Scarborough, what type of a place it is, how it's been transformed over the past decade, what's happened in the town, where, where things are going? I was a hotel manager running one of the larger properties in the town and uh, the whole Renaissance roadshow rolled into town uh, as part of we, the activity back in the early 2000s done by the regional development agencies and uh, Yorkshire Ford of course was our one for this part of the world which is a brilliant, brilliant organisation. They gave some really serious leadership to the whole region and they started asking what could we do to improve your town and as a hotel manager I was terribly aware of my the economic performance of the hotel, the yields of the hotels in seaside towns are poor so these are things we're all very aware of and other aspects like uh, poor levels of aspiration of kids leaving school we hemorrhaged our kids at the age of 16 18 rather when they finished doing their a-levels go to university and we never see them again and all that led to a, a bit of a shame for the economy the whole attitude was well it's only scarborough that will do when the rdas rocked up and said right it's all about raising the quality and raising the profit and performance of your businesses, but raising the place for the local community to be a great place to live. And what's more, making the place into a 365-day-a-year town, as opposed to one that closes down largely in the winter. And we had a good deal of success in Scarborough. We, we won a thing called Britain's Most Enterprising Town. That put us into the Europeans, uh, and we won Europe's Most Enterprising Place in 2009. And the legacy of that has stood us in very good stead. And we've got great new businesses setting up. Um, We discovered a few years ago that it was a real struggle getting kids into the engineering sector, which is very big in this town. Engineering does more here than tourism in the way of GDP. So as as an outcome of that was we opened a university technical college through the Baker Deering Trust. What were some of the other ideas and initiatives and schemes that, that have helped with the regeneration? Well, a lot of them were about raising the quality. So we ran a programme about Scarborough's, uh, the hospitality sector. It was all about raising the quality. It wasn't about putting the price up and making the like. It wasn't, what we didn't want to do was, was marginalise the sort of the, the, the lower cost things. So we, we didn't want the people who didn't have a lot of money when they came here on their holidays. We didn't want to penalise them and just take the place up market now to their reach. It was a case of how do you make a fish and chip shop better? Well, you, you just encourage the guy behind the counter to smile a bit more and to 
to have a clean waistcoat on and a, a clean apron and not dirty fingernails. Oh, and smile at the customers. So this whole programme of, uh, of activity was, was launched and it, we had some remarkable results. Uh, and it really started to raise the game and the, uh, the aspirations of the town. Nick, Scarborough voted, I think, 62% for leave in the referendum, the Brexit referendum. What do you attribute that to? Is that part of the issues that Scarborough faces around regeneration, quality of jobs and all that? I think an awful lot of people came out to vote who haven't done much voting before, who thought that really leaving was was the best thing to do, that it would actually bring more jobs for local people into the town instead of uh, there being people employed who were from um, from elsewhere in Europe. I think people just voted because they... They wanted to see some change. We're talking on the day, which is not an unusual day, and that we don't know what's going to happen uh, with Brexit and all that. What do you think, whatever happens with Brexit, government of whatever stripe needs to do for places like Scarborough, building on the success that you've already uh, achieved? Well, thank you for that. It's the the big thing is the is the education, Ned. The our schools locally are funded along the lines of we are. Uh, they, they don't get the level of funding as if we were in inner cities. And our problems on many of our housing estates around the town are exactly the same as they've got in the inner cities. Uh, we're funded like a shire county, if you get my drift. And the, uh, yeah. they, have, they are being cut continually. Uh, 2% uh, cuts this year in the education system with just as many students going through the door. Um, and what we're finding is that the, the level of outcome of the secondary schools is really not where it should be. In terms of the industrial future of somewhere like Scarborough, is it mainly tourism? Are there sort of other economic development aspects that are important? No, tourism is tourism is doing okay, but the the engineering sector here and the uh, the the knowledge economy is growing very well. We're also lucky. I mean, just we're just lucky enough to have um, uh, the big outpost of the GCHQ, and as, as Cheltenham is now full, effectively, um, they're employing a lot of people up here. Um, well, that will to... be good for Jeff when he has his coastal HQ because yeah. he'll be able to keep in touch with <laughs> Jeff. We need, you over we need you. Over here. We need somebody who's done Piccadilly Radio and all that sort of stuff over here in, in Scarborough, Jeff. We need we need you here. Last question, Nick. So we're conjuring this picture of Jeff with his coastal HQ in Scarborough. And Panoramic I, sea yeah. views. I think I'd say you've got Panoramic to be careful on, the, on yep. the planning issues there. Just make sure he doesn't, like, you know, take you for a ride. Um, if, he made you, if he made you his sort of chief advisor um, on coastal issues... What's what's the first thing you would do? Not not simply for Scarborough, but but sort of across the country. It's about energising people, Ed. It's about getting the people realising that they can make a difference. They don't have to sit back and wait for a local authority to do something, um, because there are funds out there. I mean, the Coastal Communities Fund, for example, is one which which we can tap into, um, and that's funded largely by by the the, um, the Crown Estate. And it's about channeling those funds into the best, getting the best outcome. Um, into delivering jobs and into delivering, uh, you know, an improved economy in the in the seaside towns, not relying completely on tourism, but also a lot of what we did was actually to make the town a better place to live, and it was about trying to make the place if it's nice enough for the people to come and who live here to yeah. go and use the restaurants and cafes and pubs and shops and such like. that's going to benefit the the visitors as well because so often towns feel disenfranchised because everything's done for the visitor economy and not for the locals and by consulting with the locals we got this buy-in if you like from them that they then started to recognize that the community could start improving the place for themselves 
Sounds very good. Let's hope Jeff's arrival doesn't put people off. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love it. Give us a shout, Jeff. You've got my contact details. We'd love to see you. Yeah, and I want to know where the, this, this best fish and chip shop with the, the, the nice waistcoats is. Nick Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Nice to talk to you all. Thank you for the call. Now we're heading to the other end of the country, to the south coast, and I'm delighted to say that we've got Sam Scriven, who's the programme manager at the Jurassic Coast Trust on the line. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling us what the Jurassic Coast is for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with it and and, and the story of, of what you've been doing? So the geography of the Jurassic Coast is uh, it's a nice five mile stretch of the Dorset and East Devon coastline. So that stretches from Exmouth in East Devon right the way along to Studland Bay in Dorset. So within that, you've got Budley Salterton, Sidmouth, Lyme Regis, Seaton, Beer, Weymouth, Portland, Lulworth, Kimbridge and Swanage. So lots and lots of seaside towns. Oh, and of course, West Bay, made famous by um, Broadchurch, of course, in the last few years. It's a World Heritage Site, so that's part of this global UNESCO programme, which is all about helping them to deliver their mission to improve peaceful relations between nations. So it's quite a big political idea. And these are places that have outstanding universal value. So their heritage value transcends economic and political boundaries. And the Jurassic Coast won this status in 2001, based on its amazing geology, fossils and uh, natural landforms. So it's not about the wildlife and the beauty, our world heritage status, interestingly, it's just the geology. And what we've got is uh, a remarkable rock record, which spans 185 million years of Earth's history. And tell us about some of the challenges that the area faces and what the sort of how the designation has helped you and how you're coping with some of those challenges like a lot of coastal communities there's a there's a fair bit of deprivation especially places like weymouth and portland and i suppose for the for the whole coast something like world heritage status is is hugely valuable for lots of different ways but and some of them are a little bit nuanced and, and not necessarily something you can easily put a kind of price tag on in terms of deprivation, of course, conservation, environmental conservation, isn't a panacea for the kinds of economic deprivation that places like Weymouth and Portland and other, and other towns suffer from. But it is an important um, lever to help inspire investment, inspire innovation and those kinds of uh, things. And the quality of the environment is also something that has um, just a kind of wider benefit so we did a, an economic study, well, Dorset County Council did an economic study into the value of Dorset's natural environment. And that included the Dorset area of outstanding natural beauty, but also the, the Jurassic Coast stretching down into East Devon. And found that the World Heritage status influenced around £100 million of economic activity every year. But that was to do with this, the quality of the environment as a draw for not just tourism and, and growth in tourism, but also just the, something that inspires people to move here, to live here, to stay here, to, to establish their businesses here, because they want to be within this landscape of very high quality. If we made you Minister for Coastal Communities in uh, the utopia we have on this podcast, the Jeffocracy, what is, what is the first thing, if I gave you carte blanche, uh, I'm busy staring out to sea from the Jurassic Coast, what is the first thing you do on, on day one? I mean, in my experience, the policy level towards the environment and climate change and coastal communities and the threats that sea level rise and things like that pose, the policy level, it says, mostly says all the right things. 
But when you get down to the level at which the decisions are made on a day-to-day basis, there's not really very much political will there to face up to these challenges. There's a bit of the, uh, uh, we'll do it later kind of attitude. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll just carry on doing what we've always done, which is generally sort of defending the coast and so on. Uh, with hard defences and investing in those kinds of things. We'll just carry on doing that for the next 10 or 20 years. And then after that, we'll start to face up to the real challenges. But, you know, in the meantime, as sea levels rise, if you want to take it to this sort of um, worst case scenario, you've got all these seaside towns that have a beach with a promenade behind it, which is a hard coastal defence. As sea levels rise, that hard coastal defence isn't going anywhere. The only thing that's going to be squeezed out is the beach. And then all of a sudden you've lost the basis for your uh, local economy or one of the you know, pillars of the local economy. So making these changes, facing up to them at that ground level where the decisions are made is really, really key. So as, if I was in government, the first thing I do is to really invest heavily in empowering people at the local level to be able to make constructive uh, decisions and plans to adapt to these things. You also answered a question there that I had in my head, but I didn't want to say out loud through fear of seeming stupid or even more stupid than usual, which is we've heard a lot about coastal towns. And one of the problems uh, has been people going abroad on cheap holidays for better weather. And part of me is thinking, well, I mean, we, we all know there's all these terrible effects of climate change, but is one of the benefits maybe for these coastal towns is that the the, the it's, it's going to be warmer so people are less likely to go abroad but what you're saying is the sort of impact in terms of water levels um would would actually be very damaging well that's long term of course i mean thinking very long term um now really next hundred years or so but that's the thing that's the the the, the threat of climate change the sort of um the the sword of damocles if you like hanging over the whole thing is that we have uh, a, a, a tourism economy here based on a coast that is in a, in a particular condition right now. And if the history of our planet tells us anything, is that change is inevitable. And with climate change, the predictions with climate change, the increase in storminess, increase in sea level, the nature of how we use our coastlines is inevitably going to change and maybe change quite significantly in the next few decades. So I just really think it's important to get in early and be able to uh, empower people to adapt, be aware of those changes and plan for them right now, because it takes a long time, doesn't it, to make those kinds of changes to communities and the way we work and live. Sam Scriven, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. So what do you think then? I I thought that was a really excellent discussion. And I think I need to sort of, you know, fess up here, which is it was a bit like the sortition episode where I was very skeptical in advance i wasn't quite sure what the point of it was going to be but i think the point of it then it sort of the scales fell from my eyes fish scales fell from my eyes uh which is i think this goes to the heart of the sort of post brexit or whatever we do on brexit kind of conundrum which is because there hasn't been a proper industrial policy in the country lots of areas haven't shared in the prosperity that has been in other parts of the country. And in a way, I think there's in the public debate, in the media and public debate, the sort of model for this is quote unquote, northern towns. Now, you know, I represent Doncaster North, you know, I think places like Doncaster have missed out too much, although there are great things going on, has missed out too much on government investment, all of those things. But I think coastal towns just aren't talked about nearly as much. I just, and it's partly because they're not maybe represented in the same way by, you know, one political party, generally Labour MPs, not always Labour MPs, but generally, you know, who who kind of are 
increasingly speaking you know more and more about these things you know they're in different parts of the country so you, do you know what i mean and but i think it is as much an issue certainly given the numbers who live in coastal towns as places like doncaster you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd ready to pop the question The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you've got thoughts about what you've heard about coastal towns or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast and on Instagram, the same address. And you can also find us on facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. And do remember to rate us on your podcast app, iTunes or whatever. Uh, five stars, please. Um, because not just because we want um, to improve our self-esteem, but because it's good for other people to get to listen, isn't it? Yes. With and the there mi- is a lot of room for improvement in, in our self-esteem too. The mystery of the iTunes chart. Talking of self-esteem, your mother-in-law has emailed us. <laughs> Lynn Barron, come on down. Don't read it out. It only encourages Uh, you. She's back. She's back and she's bad. Um, (laughs) uh, So it it doesn't actually have sort of much personal content. It's like Dear Ed and Jeff. And she says, reasons to be cheerful. It's like a memo. Right. It's it's a memo from your (laughs) mother-in-law. Reasons to be cheerful. Topic, colon. Developing programs to promote self-esteem early on in girls in order for them to feel more valued for intelligence, to be encouraged to have a strong voice, have a sense of self-worth, and consequently to find themselves less victimised. Suggestion for guest, colon. Michelle Obama. Of course. Why didn't we think of that? This is a cause very dear to her heart. I think she would bite. Uh, Lynn Barron. (laughs) I mean, what, what a great suggestion. She's obviously feeling very warm towards you at the moment, your mother-in-law. <laughs> so it's a good memo from Lynn Barron. She sends the best memos. Thank you. Any members of our families or friendship circles who want to get in touch, it's reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. What do you think about that then? Do you think uh, that Michelle Obama would be uh, pleased to... Um, do you go, go on. I don't, I don't see where you're going, going with po- this. Podcast? Do you have an in? Uh, Could we tweet her? My impression is that she's obviously she's obviously a bit desperate for sales, but she's only sold ten million <laughs> copies of her of her book. Becoming, so we I could think, get her up to ten million and twenty. Yeah, so she obviously needs like a few more sales to just kind of push her over the top. Yeah. So, so maybe uh, maybe there's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, we do get pitched a lot of guests. You know, so we'd have to see if we could fit her in. We have quite a tight schedule. We are starting to think about what who we want to see on podcast number 100. Yes. We're currently at 
number 80 this is number 80 so if again if people have thoughts on that be grateful to hear them i keep saying ringo star but ed isn't keen well failing that lynn barron send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast and here to pitch us some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful we're joined by comedian jess robinson hello jess hello how are you i'm fine and you're you're out on tour at the moment i am i've got a tour on called no filter at the moment which uh is full of musical impressions and stand up and uh everything really it's lots of fun we had beardy man on recently and he could do not musical impressions but he could do impressions of various different objects like machine guns and helicopters oh i do people uh-huh. Uh, Who do you do then? I do Teresa sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I've just started to do uh, Olivia Coleman as well. She's amazing, isn't she? Uh, that's that's really, good. That's care. good. A little bit of Cheryl. Do you know Cheryl? Yep. Everybody knows her. Um, and then I do singers like Lily Allen <laughs> and uh, Catherine Jenkins. Oh, mio bambino caro. And Brittany. Oh, baby, baby. Like. Anyone, anyone you like, really. Very good. If only they were doing a celebrity stars in their eyes. My show is like celebrity stars in their eyes. <laughs> I've got, I've got them all in my mouth. That sounds wrong. How, how do you discover you can do people's singing voices? Is it by singing along with the radio? Yeah, I did. I, that's how I started. My auntie was into Kate Bush, and when I heard her voice, I just put down all the the take that and all the the stuff that my friends were listening to, and thought that Kate Bush was the best thing I had ever heard with that incredible. Oh, voice she was like a you've obviously got a very good voice though to be able to do this well i had classical singing lessons and i wanted to uh i had a place at bristol uni to go and do a music degree and i was going to do classical singing and then i realized it was more fun to make people laugh let me ask you a question is there anybody you've tried and you just can't get can't do any men uh I could probably do Joe Pasquale. Can't do any men uh, or Alison Moyer. They're they're too low. (laughs) Jess, you brought along some ideas. I've got some to fix the world and give us reasons to be cheerful. What what is the first one? I am a bit of a a people pleaser, and I hate any sort of confrontation. It makes me um, I bulk at it. Mm. Um, You're really at home here. That's exactly what we're like. (laughs) Seriously, seriously. We all just want everyone to be nice to each other. Exactly. Totally. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes you do have to um, express some difficult feelings and, and uh, you have to have different opinions to people sometimes. And so I think that to, to make it a bit easier, you should sing at each other because it just relieves the tension. So if you could, I really think you've got bad breath. But that sounds much nicer than, oh, my gosh, your breath is so bad, doesn't it? Yeah, so so performance. The other person feel better. Courageous conversations. Courageous yes. conversations. Yeah. So I thought that could go into Prime Minister's Question Times. That would get less brutal. And and if people ha- want to in- interrupt and go eh, eh, and all of that stuff, they have to do it in harmony. There is a weird thing though when British politicians try anything like that, mm. it ne- never goes as well as it seems to. Like for example, with Obama, Obama would sing from time to time. He'd sort of burst into. He sang you know, Amazing Grace sang, when there was this. Uh, terrible shooting mm. uh, yeah. in, in the south I yeah, think in the church in the south British politicians mustn't um, think that they're doing something cool or trying yeah. to they should just they should just embrace the, the very fact that they have to sing that there shouldn't be anything like trying to be meaningful or cool about it it's just something that you do I think it'll make people less mean anyway 
Okay. It would. So that's yeah, what I we, we buy it. Yep. Yeah. We're oh, on. Great. What's next, Jess? We like it already. <laughs> oh! Yeah, definitely. Those calls. Definitely. Right? The calls. Yeah, definitely. But you pick up, silence, and then it goes. Definitely. Please hold. Ding, 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 ding. It's fucking annoying. It's yeah. the worst. Yeah. Who, who's I allowed know. to do this? I totally agree. Yeah. And also, as well as that, can there be a thing that you can opt out of these sales calls? Can you opt out? I think you're supposed to be, calls? but it, I mean, I don't have a landline, but if I go and visit my mum and dad, their phone rings many times awful. a day and every single call is but one I, of those things. Yeah, because I get it on my mobile. Yeah, I um, get it on my mobile too. Hi, I'd like to speak to you about the recent car accident <laughs> you were in. And can, I'm I, like, can I just say to you though, after the general election of 2015, I was really grateful for the calls from PPI. Your phone wouldn't have ever rung otherwise. Like, I like grabbed the phone. <laughs> talk to me. Talk on a, to honestly, me. you know, so they, there's a kind of there's a role for them. You okay. never did any of those robot calls when you were canvassing for votes, did you? I don't think we do them in this country, do we? Oh, maybe not. I think it's a very American thing. Well, it's you... always a Hastings number on mine. Really? Yeah, it's terrible. Just in Hastings. terrible. God. Yeah, well, okay, uh, we, we, yeah, we yeah, hate yeah. those calls. We, 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 okay. We're with you. Gone. Um, no more dill. What? No more dill. No, this is... I mean, you, dill is an... This all... is such I mean, an offensive... Now offens- it's controversial. This is such this, an offensive... Offens- you should be singing this. It's now such an no offensive opinion. Dill. It's the worst herb no. of all the herbs. It's one of the greats. No, it's One an of angry, the greats. It's an angry herb. It's a lovely summery taste. It's a taste that colours everything it touches. Of summer. It tastes of very much dill. Oh, it tastes of, of Satan. Of summer. Really? No. Yeah. Wow. We've oh, really split opinion on this. Oh, I can make you a lovely Dillgate. Nigel Slater green bean dish with some yogurt and some dill. Never made no, me that. I, I will I do I love that. it without the dill. No dill. Oh, I love a bit you of dill. You always had this dill. I need to start an anti-dill antagonism. Dill phobia. Yeah, do you know so where you wouldn't do well? It ruins all salmon. Scandinavia. Very big on dill in the Nordic countries. <laughs> I went to Iceland, actually, and I tried... We and... went to Iceland recently. Did you? We had a lovely weekend away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a dill cocktail there because I thought, look, uh, let me, you know, you're supposed to eat something eight times to be able to appreciate yeah. it or something. Um, so I, I tried like to have it. a dill cocktail. Well, I sniffed it, but my nose is quite big. Um, not because I'm Jewish, but it has something to do with it, I'm sure. And I, um, my nose went too far in. I don't know the length of my own nose. And so I <laughs> snorted the dill cocktail. <laughs> I even had some coming out the corner of my eye. I mean, but... you can be arrested for that. So, <laughs> dill, so have you been traumatised by dill? Is that what's happened I here? was traumatised before, but that mm. was just the nail, final nail in the coffin. I, no did dill. We, what did we have that drink? We had an ice Was that dill related? Yeah, or not? maybe it was a bit, of a bit of dill going on there. Oh, so do you not enjoy so a, a, a Something pickled with a bit of dill in it. I don't. I don't mind those those pickled cucumbers. Oh, here we go. I now. don't mind them, but that's because pickled cucumbers. They have things. Gherkins. Are they related to dill? Well, they they often they're... pickle them with a bit of dill in yeah. dill in there. Dill um, cucumbers is a thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, but they don't taste very much of dill. They're more about the sweetness and the vinegar and the nice texture and stuff. If well, if dill has a, a big enough flavour to offset it, that's fine. But it overpowers everything, and it 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 really. Where do you stand I on? I think it's the, a well-made case. Where do you stand on coriander? Coriander's fine. Interesting. I know, I know. Some people have the coriander thing, but 
You can use just a hint of coriander and it doesn't ruin everything. Well, the coriander, I like coriander, but it's, it's genetic. If you spit into um, a test tube and send it off, they'll send you uh, some results back telling you whether you're predisposed to genetically like coriander or not. But Are you serious? I, I don't think that applies with dill. What? No, I think only evil people like dill. Well, I am inherently evil, so that figures. <laughs> I'm not going to intervene in the dill thing. I'm staying out of this one. It's oh. too controversial. Okay. All the seeds and raspberries to be removed. I can get on board with that. Because a raspberry is a lovely thing, isn't it? And you're eating and it's wonderful. And then for the rest of the day, you are picking out those but seeds from the back of your teeth. I think it's not doable, is it? Someone will do it. Someone will need the work. Do you think it's a modification thing? I mean, they, All nuns could do it. Blind they're not nuns. Removable. The they're ones not remo- that do lace. <laughs> they're not removable, are they? I'm sure with a very... So they probably used to say that about grapes. Yes. Can't be done. No, but that's like people like you sorry, sorry, can't sorry. be done. Sorry, there's a very big difference between a seed in a grape mm. and a seed in a raspberry. I mean, I don't yes. like to be kind of, you know, I mean, I'm not talk- dogmatic not- about this, but... There's one seed or two seeds in a grape. Yeah. There's multiple millions of but seeds in a But at some point, grape. somebody would have been sitting there in your position saying, oh, they're inside the grape. How would you get them out? You get just not think you're not. Yes. You think it's like the sort of creation of the NHS? You know, it's just like it needs a leap of imagination. Exactly, just yes. Does. Yeah, yeah. I am not talking pomegranates. I've not gone crazy. Yeah. Although... Interesting. That's another fruit that's spoiled by its seeds, isn't it? I think I'm... I'm not sure I'm with you on the raspberries. Oh, I know the Ed. seeds problem. It's the, a terrible the, problem. The seeds problem is a problem. You get such a sore tongue for taking yeah. it out of the back of your teeth. I mean, there there is a leap of imagination in all these things. The banning of dill, singing yeah. Prime Minister's Question Time. Why why can't you take that know. leap with the, the raspberry seeds? Just, I just haven't quite crossed the sort of raspberry Rubicon. I just I'm amazed sort of, at that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, a, I'm amazed. I'm at your sorry. You just found my bottom. <laughs> you found my bottom line. <laughs> well, how about this one then? Yeah. Is it one kiss or two? When you greet somebody, do you go hello, or do you go hello, mwah, mwah, or do you go hello, mwah, yeah. mwah, mwah, or do you go hello, hug? No or, one knows. No hand? one knows. Well, can no, we it, yeah. decide now, please? Yeah. I think it's been a sort of anarchic breakdown of any rules that there yeah. were. On Even this. posh people don't know because if you ever watch sort of market um, award ceremonies and things, they they don't know what they're doing either. They're going the wrong Terrible. way. They, I, I try and just close yes, it which down. Which way first? I kissed a producer yeah. on the nose the other day and by it, accident in an audition. But, but it yeah, was also, I mean, there's, 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 I'd say it's a sort of two-stage process really which is one what's the stage at which you get to the kiss yes and then secondly is it one or two or three you mean should there be foreplay well yes (laughs) should it be a greeting yeah or a you know i accidentally once ended up with denise van outen's ear in my mouth it was very embarrassing it's it's terrible the body parts that people have kissed by accident yeah i mean i i I think we shouldn't be touching each other that would be a good rule to have in place so right okay does that mean that when you do the kiss you're just kissing the air do you touch cheeks just a little nod as in cheeks on your face just just little nods like like a northerner in a pub all right all right yeah just that yeah why must we be touching each other? I think post Brexit there won't be any of this. You don't really mind believe this, do you? Touching each other. Hey, a nice handshake and a, and then you pull the person in for one, t- one kiss. But then you get judged on your handshake. Somebody told me that I shake hands like I've got one of those electric buzzers in my hand. Shake my hand. No, that <laughs> you do. You wiggle it. <laughs> a firm Hang hand. On. So I'm yeah. shaking your hand. No, wow, that's really what you literally shake the person's hand. Some, somebody also, also said to me once, I can tell you went to a comprehensive school from a handshake. Oh, fuck you, they can fuck <laughs> off. No. Does that even Who mean? Who is that? It doesn't matter. Good, uh, strong handshake. 
But it, you judder it. Right, so I've got to stop the judder. Yeah, just a down. But then it's not a shake. What's the shake bit of the handshake then? It's a really slow shake. What are you proposing then? I'm just proposing that someone, head of kissing in the government. You should be head of kissing, I think. Oh, I what? think I think you get the um, I think you get the get job. Okay. We've never we've yeah. not nominated anyone in the no, democracy no, for head of kissing. It's, it's been a vacant role until this point. Okay, it's yeah. like Donald Trump's administration. Yes, yes. It's been hard to fill the role. But also, what I'll I would let you do kissing. is make public information films. You know, like you used to get 100%. the ones about not flying a kite near pylons. Good. It'd be public information films on how to how to do kissy because greetings. If you do kissing, is a confusing, confusing business. It's a confusing business. Yeah. It's like tax doesn't have to be taxing. Kissing yeah. doesn't have to be awkward. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're, we're what on. is it? Two, one, three. I think it's six. I think it's one, two hug, just to be real friendly. One and one. a hug. Left, right hug. Uh, I go to this way first. That's my left. I don't know my left and right still. See, I think there's an interesting there's, thing in there's France. A failing in my education. There's an interesting thing in France, which is what's the point at which men graduate to kissing. Because men, when they're thirteen years old, in France, men kiss each other as a greeting. Friends with tongues, not with tongues. Well, <laughs> some people do use tongues, but uh, but as friends, uh, that's generally not advisable. This is my favourite uh, thing that's ever happened uh, uh, to me. Uh, uh, um, but well, I I think it's quite. I spending a bit of time that last year. What, what's the point at which you sort of graduate to that? Is an interesting question. Oh, in mm. your friendship, yes. Right, okay, so... I think it's quite nice French men kissing, actually. Is it at the same point? <laughs> <laughs> is... Can I... Oh, please, can Why you isolate we that? Why weren't we videoing that? Please isolate that for me. <laughs> is it the same point that you would stop using the vu form and start using the two form? Ah, interesting. interesting. And is that a big thing when that suddenly happens? It would. I, I, I would consider it a big thing if I was French. I'd take somebody out for dinner and say, I think we're ready to start using the two form. I think what's interesting about this is that we've not only got a role in the Jeffocracy for you, but you can go global with this role. Yeah. Oh. So you can succeed so as a minister diplomacy. for the Jeffocracy. Yeah, you can be minister for the kissing in the Jeffocracy, and then you can basically make it a sort of international role. Marvellous. Kissing yeah. envoy. Because yes. the worst thing is when you do one uh, too many kisses and then you feel like a pervert. Does that happen to you? <laughs> Well, I was cupping something at the same time, but yeah. <laughs> um, Jess, you, you're on tour. The show is called No Filter. It is because I don't have one. And you, you're going to be uh, you're going to be all around the country. I'm everywhere. If you live Sounds in the fantastic. UK, I'm going there. That is everywhere, Jess. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks for having a lot. me. Reasons to be cheerful. A podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. No, that went fast. Yeah, it did. I enjoyed meaningful vote two and a half. So will it then go to three and a half or will there be a three in between? I'm very confused now. What increments? Could well, there be I a meaningful vote 2.75? Well, I think she's probably got a problem in bringing meaningful vote two and a half back because of the ruling of the Speaker. Uh, and, maybe, and maybe a yeah, meaningful vote three is hard to bring back too. Uh, I think she might be a bit up the creek. You'll sort it all out though, won't you? You'll save, yeah, you'll we'll save the a, country for we'll us. Do, we'll do our best. Um, should we do some thank yous? Yes. I'd like to thank Fernando Bellata, Nick Taylor and Sam Scriven. And thanks to Jess Robinson. Uh, what a fantastic voice Jess has as well. Absolutely. Hugely entertaining. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. James Deacon made the eye dance, Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork. Emily Power. So, uh, so that's it. I think, I think to celebrate our episode on coastal towns, we should go on a coach and go on a coach trip to the seaside. Margate. I fancy Margate. Let's, let's do it. Should we do it now? 
Rescue Elope? Have you not got better things to be doing? Maybe it'll all look clearer from Margate. <laughs> Looking across the English Channel. Exactly. Yeah. He's been Ed Kiss Me Quick Miliband. He's been Jeff Squeeze Me Slowly Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to Be Beside the Seaside. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.